Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. Um, and I just want to hop right into it here today. Um, a lot of news today. It was a pretty busy day. Lots of Ukraine, Russia stuff. So that's what, what we're going to start with today. Now we've seen kind of a common theme this this week. Our, most of our top stories have been about Ukraine using U.S. and other Western-provided weapons to target Russia. Um, this is important because, like I have mentioned, you know, put the shoe on the other foot. If Russia was openly funding a war against the U.S. and bragging about giving them weapons to help kill American troops, um, it would be a major provocation. So the f- top story today, Ukraine is preparing to target Russian Black Sea Fleet with Western weapons. A Ukrainian military official told the Times on Monday that Ukraine is preparing to target Russia's Black Sea Fleet with Western-provided arms. That's the Times of London. Uh, This is from Ukraine's deputy defense minister. Quote, we have a permanent threat from the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Given the new technologies and capabilities we receive, we have to address this threat. End quote. Since... Since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, the U.S. and its allies have sent various anti-ship missiles to Ukraine, including U.S.-made harpoons and British-made brimstone missiles. In June, Ukraine claimed it used two harpoon missiles to sink a Russian tugboat. The the deputy defense minister said that since they're receiving all these anti-ship capabilities, they should start using them on on the Black Sea Fleet. And he also said that attacking the Black Sea Fleet would help Ukraine take back Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014. Quote, sooner or later, we will have enough resources to target Russia in the Black Sea and Crimea. Crimea is Ukrainian territory. That's why any target there is legitimate for us. End quote. So he said, quote, that Russia will have to leave Crimea if they wish to exist as a country. End quote. And this kind of gets into, you know, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, he has not dropped his demand for Ukraine, uh, excuse me, for Russia to be expelled from all of U- Ukrainian territory it's taken since it invaded, and also uh, Crimea, he includes in that. So that would you know, require just a major military offensive, and it gives you an idea of how long this war could potentially drag out if this is still what Ukraine's goals are. And now Ukraine is suggesting that it's going to use U.S.-provided weapons to attack uh, Russian-controlled Crimea. When the U.S. sent the high-mobility artillery rocket systems, the HIMARS that we have been talking about a lot lately, it's a truck-mounted multiple rocket launcher. Uh, The U.S. sought assurances that Ukraine wouldn't use the HIMARS on Russian territory. But as I've said a few times this week, Crimea is a gray area. And the deputy, Ukraine's deputy defense minister said that Ukraine is in talks with the West on whether it can use Western-provided arms against Russian targets in Crimea, which would be a major provocation to the Russians if Ukraine started attacking Crimea, especially if they did it with weapons given to them by the U.S. and other NATO allies. So this next one, more on Ukraine. Ukraine's defense minister offers Ukraine as a testing ground for NATO weapons. So this was Ukraine's defense minister in a conversation with the head of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. The Atlantic Council is a very hawkish think tank funded by 
um, the U.S. weapons industry and many governments around the world, including the American government. Um, and I know, believe one of the, I know one of the Gulf nations, maybe the UAE and Bahrain and uh, Taiwan also fund it. So Reznikov, the Ukrainian defense minister, said that Ukraine is essentially a testing ground for the advanced weaponry the U.S. and its allies are pouring into the country. Quote, many weapons are now getting tested in the field in the real conditions of the battle against the Russian army, which has plenty of modern systems of its own, end quote. So I guess the idea here is, you know, for the past few decades, the U.S. hasn't uh, fought any wars against what they call near-peer competitors. And now the argument here is that these weapons are being put to the test in this war against Russia, which is a much tougher foe than anything that the U.S. has faced uh, you know, in decades and decades, really. Um, so the Ukrainian military chief Reznikov, he made the offer in a fresh pitch for more Western arms. He said, quote, we are interested in testing modern systems in the fight against the enemy, and we're inviting arms manufacturers to test the new products here, end quote. So it does seem like this is kind of how many NATO nations and how U.S. and other Western arms makers view Ukraine. It is sort of a testing ground for these weapons. It's a place where they can uh, have a reason to sell their weapons, get money for their weapons, and, and see them in use and gives them a reason to make more. It's been a total boon for U.S. arm makers. They're making all money off sending weapons into the war zone, replenishing NATO stockpiles, and selling arms to the European countries that have decided to increase their military spending. So this is what it is all about. It seems like Lloyd Austin's pals at Raytheon just keep raking it in over this war. And then the next one here, we're going to get into the sanctions campaign, the failed Western sanctions campaign against Russia. This says that the European Union plans to ease some sanctions on Russia by unfreezing funds belonging to top Russian banks to allow the shipment of more grain and fertilizer. This is according to a Reuters report, said that they saw a draft EU document and EU diplomats are expected to agree to the amended sanctions on Wednesday. Um, they say that the money can be released if it's shown that it's needed to purchase agricultural products, food products, fertilizer. These are all things that EU and U.S. sanctions technically have exemptions for. But it's really, really important to point out that no matter what exemptions there are, companies, shipping companies, insurance companies, international banks, when a country is hit with a lot of Western sanctions, mainly U.S. sanctions, it makes these companies very hesitant to do any business at all with the countries that are targeted. And we see this time and time again that businesses just pull out of countries altogether. Uh, the example I used here is Iran. The U.S. sanctions on Iran technically have exemption for medical goods, yet we see medicine shortages as a result of the sanctions. Now, the EU and the U.S. are acting surprised by this. I mentioned here that back in June, Bloomberg reported that the U.S. is quietly encouraging companies to purchase and ship Russian fertilizer because they're surprised at how cautious they're being. But again, we see this all the time when the U.S. puts sanctions on countries. We see this in Venezuela, Iran, um, Syria, all, all over the world. If, if they have that black mark of being heavily sanctioned nations, companies just don't want to do business. They don't want to bother. And it also disrupts everything. I mean, if Russian shipping is targeted, but there's exemptions, that means every Russian ship going into an EU port is subject to, or any ship coming from Russia is subject to, they have to inspect them and make sure that they're not violating sanctions. It slows everything down. And again, this is obvious, you know, 
it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand what would happen here. Um, but this is what we're seeing. And, and again, they're acting surprised. So the next one here, somewhat related to the sanctions, the IMF warns of deep recessions in Europe if Russia cuts gas supply. So IMF researchers, they said in a blog post on Tuesday that um, if Russia cuts off its natural gas supplies to the European Union, it could cause deep recessions in Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Italy. Now, if Russia cuts off gas to, to the EU, it's going to hurt a lot more countries than just those four, but it, it's putting up some pretty serious numbers for these four countries. Hungary in particular, who is more reliant on Russian gas than many other countries, could face a loss of over 6% of its gross domestic product, which is huge. But Hungary, you know, since they're so reliant on Russian energy, Viktor Orban, the president, he was able to get an exemption from the EU plan to ban the import of Russian oil so he can keep importing Russian oil. Orban is also less hostile towards Russia than most EU members. So it's possible, you know, Hungary could be spared by any Russian gas embargo because Russia, they've cut off some EU members in retaliation over their refusal. Well, really, it was because they didn't want to pay for gas in rubles. And that was a policy put in place by Vladimir Putin in retaliation for U.S. and EU sanctions that specifically targeted Russia's use of the dollar and euro. So the countries that didn't do it got cut off, um, most of them at least. And other supplies have been reduced due to Western sanctions. And the IMF said that the economic pain could be offset if EU nations step up cooperation to share alternative supplies. Under the IMF's best case scenario, Germany, which is Europe's largest economy, will shrink its GDP, its GDP by about 1%. In the direst scenario, in the worst case scenario, I should have said, Germany's GDP will be reduced by nearly 3%, which is very significant. Now, the EU is expecting Russia to cut off its gas supplies, and they're working on plans for energy cuts, which are expected to be pr proposed by the European Commission. Uh, according to the Associated Press, early leaks of a proposed plan asked EU members to reduce their consumption of gas by 15%, which is a lot. And, you know, it's going to be a long winter in Europe uh, because of all these issues around uh, Russian gas. Um all right, so the next one here, we're getting into NATO expansion. The House endorses expanding NATO into Sweden and Finland. So on Monday night, the House voted uh, overwhelmingly to support Finland and Sweden's uh, NATO bids in a vote of 394 to 18, with only Republicans voting in opposition. And then on Tuesday, the Senate arms services committee they gave approval for sweden and finland's nato bids and that sends it to the senate for a vote where it could it's expected to be voted on next week now the senate needs to approve sweden and finland's they need to ratify their membership by two a two-thirds majority which they're gonna get most likely i mean it would be a shock if they didn't there might be some republicans that vote against but i don't think they're gonna really have trouble uh, getting there. But um, there's also the issue of Turkey, which I mentioned yesterday. Turkey has warned that they could, that its parliament could still block Sweden and Finland from joining NATO if they don't give in to their demands. They signed a deal to um, 
lift their objection to the Nordic countries joining NATO, and they they want to make sure that Sweden and Finland live up to it. And Finland, as I mentioned here, Finland shares an over 800-mile border with Russia, and its ascension into NATO would double the alliance's frontier with Russia. It would double the amount of NATO territory bordering Russia. Now, Moscow has said, we've heard Putin say this a few times, that they don't view Sweden and Finland joining the alliance as much of a threat. He said that they don't view it as much of a threat as if Ukraine joined the alliance because they don't have territorial disputes. But he said that they will respond to the expansion of NATO military infrastructure in the region. And here I list the House Republicans that voted against expanding NATO further on Russia's border. If you want to check that out. Okay, so the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, our opinion editor of antiwar.com. Top senators back DOJ plan to use RICO laws to target Russian access. So the Department of Justice, they want to use laws designed to target the mafia to seize Russian assets so they can take more of Russia's stuff. Of uh, And uh, uh, DOJ officials presented this plan to a hearing, a Senate hearing on Tuesday, and they seem to get a lot of support from the senators. Um, so this is just... So the plan, it calls for the definition of racketeering to be expanded under the Racketeer Influence and Corruption Organizations Act, known as the RICO Act. The DOJ recommendation will allow U.S. attorneys to charge violations of sanctions and export controls as racketeering. Um, So that would really open up a lot more assets for seizure. And then you wonder how this could expand to target not just Russia, but other countries. Because the U.S. is so sanction-happy that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to enforce that on other countries that are violating sanctions. Now, this next one, this is a pretty important issue that I like to cover a lot. And um, it's related to Taiwan and the increasing U.S. support for Taiwan and how China is reacting to it. Nancy Pelosi will visit Taiwan in August despite warnings from China. So several media outlets reported this on Tuesday that Nancy Pelosi is visiting the island of Taiwan next month. And it would mark the first time in 25 years that a sitting House speaker uh, would visit the island since Newt Gingrich made the trip in 1997. She was set to make the trip back in April, but she canceled it after testing positive for COVID-19. So responding to the news of Pelosi's planned trip, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian delivered a stern warning. He said if Pelosi goes through with the visit, China will take, quote, strong and resolute measures to safeguard its sovereignty and territorial integrity, end quote. So Washington, the U.S., severed diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979 as part of its steps towards normalization with Beijing. And they you know, practice the one China policy and they don't have formal ties with Taiwan at all. And for the, for decades, I mean, with some exceptions, typically uh, former U.S. officials, delegations of former U.S. officials would represent U.S. interests on the island. And there's also a de facto embassy that, uh, you know, people work at that aren't technically U.S. diplomats. So it's always unofficial ties. But in recent years, we've really seen the U.S. step up these congressional delegations. And it's really uh, angering China. We saw 
during the Trump administration in August of 2020, I believe, he sent his health secretary, Alex Azar at the time, to Taiwan, and that marked the highest level U.S. visit to the island since 1979. And you're going to hear that me say that a lot as I cover Taiwan because there are a lot of unprecedented things going on with when it comes to the U.S. relationship with Taiwan. They see Taiwan now. They view it differently. It used to be an issue between U.S.-China relations. Now they view it as an opportunity to counter China. U.S. officials have said this. Um, so there's been a pretty major shift. And China's been responding to these visits by increasing military activity near Taiwan. Earlier this month, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, and he's a proponent of giving the president war powers to intervene if China attacks Taiwan. Um, this is something that many ultra hawks, as I call them, are in favor of. And they actually, he introduced legislation last year that would give President Biden the authority to intervene if China attacked Taiwan. Um, that's pretty serious. And now he met with President Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese president, and she thanked him for, the, for introducing that legislation. And China responded by flying warplanes over the median line that separates the Taiwan Strait. And the revelation of Pelosi's planned trip comes as the U.S. has stepped up its military activity in the South China Sea. Last week, the U.S. sailed warships into the disputed waters to, to challenge China's claims after warning Beijing that it would intervene if China attacked Philippine vessels in the area. So last week, the U.S. reminded China that the U.S.-Philippine Mutual Defense Treaty applies to the South China Sea and that if China attacks Philippine vessels, the U.S. would go to war with China. Um, and it's really, it's just, we're just keep adding areas where the U.S. is willing to go to war, says it's going to go to war um, with major powers. That seems to be a common theme of the Biden administration. Um, and while China always denounces U.S. military activity in the region, the steps Washington is taking to increase ties with Taiwan appear to be more provocative in the eyes of Beijing. Because to China, they seem to get angrier and respond harsher. Not harsher, but you know they, they, they always respond to these high-level visits. And now, this is a quote that I like to remind people of. Back in January, China's ambassador to the U.S., who's not a hawk, you know, judging by the way he, he carries himself, uh, he, he brought a message of good relations when he came to Washington last year to take the post as the Chinese ambassador. Qin Gong is his name. But back in January, he warned that Washington's support for what they call Taiwan's independence forces could lead to a war between the two powers between the U.S. and China. And we've seen this warning from Chinese officials. We've seen them make this warning more as the U.S. is increasing its support for Taiwan. Um, and the last one here, we have an article about how Henry Kissinger warned Biden against endless confrontation with China because it's interesting to see that Henry Kissinger is less you know, hawkish on Russia and China than the kind of mainstream uh, I don't want to say mainstream liberal, but kind of mainstream, what we're just seeing out of the Biden administration, what we're seeing out of Democrats in Congress and most Republicans, with the exception of few. I'm not trying to excuse all the hawkish Republicans, but um, they're, they're, they, they're, they're worse on China generally, the Republicans, than Russia. Um, but it is just a very few that are voting against 
this funding this proxy war against Russia. So I shouldn't really give the Republicans any credit. <laughs> um, but the last one here, the U.S. bomb Somalia says two Al-Shabaab fighters killed. So according to U.S. Africa Command, the U.S. launched an airstrike against Al-Shabaab in a remote region of Somalia on Sunday. AFRICOM said its initial assessment found that the strike killed two Al-Shabaab fighters and claimed no civilians were harmed, although the Pentagon is notorious for undercounting civilian casualties, especially in Somalia where U.S. operations are shrouded in secrecy. And I linked to a great piece from Nick Tercy about how the U.S. undercounted civilian casualties in Somalia. Um, so the airstrike, it came after President Biden ordered the, the, ordered, excuse me, ordered the deployment of up to 500 U.S. troops to Somalia back in May. Sunday's bombing marked the second U.S. airstrike AFRICOM reported since Biden signed that order to send those troops back into Somalia. At the end of the Trump administration, he pulled some troops out of Somalia, kind of just shifted them into neighboring Djibouti and Kenya, which is where most of the U.S. drones are based that bomb Somalia anyway. Um, so the air war was able to continue. But uh, since Biden's come into office, the air war in Somalia has actually significantly declined. Uh, since he took office in January 2021, AFRICOM ha has announced AFRICOM has announced seven airstrikes in Somalia compared with 52 in 2020. So it's a pretty big difference. Trump really ramped things up in Somalia and bombed the country way more than uh, Obama and Bush did combined in, in one year. Um, so he really did ramp it up. And now U.S. operations in Somalia are justified by the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. That's what gave Bush the authority to invade Afghanistan. And that's what we're using today against Al-Shabaab and ISIS, groups that didn't exist at the time. Al-Shabaab first surfaced in 2006, but they didn't declare loyalty to Al-Qaeda until 2012 after years of battling the U.S. and its proxies, including a U.S.-backed Ethiopian invasion of Somalia. So Ethiopia invaded Somalia in 2006. And they ousted the Islamic Courts Union, and Al-Shabaab was an offshoot of that. They were kind of the more radical ones, and they were more radicalized by that war. And WikiLeaks revealed that the U.S. Um, really pushed Ethiopia to launch that invasion. Um, so it's not like they just declared allegiance to Al-Qaeda out of nowhere. Um, but anyway, that's, that's it for the news. Uh, there's a few more stories that I skipped over cause we had a lot today. Uh, we have some good viewpoints as always. I should try to m maybe make a point to highlight some, our original stuff. Um, but I just want to end by saying our fundraiser, our latest fundraiser is we're really close. If you see our little meter there, um, we're just a few thousand away from 80,000 and we could really use the help. I know times are tough for everybody right now. But this is the only way that we can, uh, you know, operate and function is by being funded by our readers. And if you like the podcast, um, you know, this is, um, you know, it's antiwar.com. I wouldn't be able to do it without them. I wouldn't be able to write all these articles without them. So please uh, pitch in what you can. And on that note, I just want to say, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, we're on all the podcast apps. Um, and if you want to contact the show, we shortened up the email, made it nice and easy. It's uh, news at antiwar.com. That's the email. If you have comments, suggestions, any feedback, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback and I really appreciate it. I know the production level for the video isn't very high. I'm going to get better at this as we go along. 
but I'm just trying to update everybody on the news of the day from our anti-war non-interventionist perspective. And with that, I will see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening.